I want to talk to you about the plateaued church today. Seven challenges of the plateaued church. Now before I talk to you about the plateaued church, I want to say just a little bit about the growing church. I've taken several months, in fact it's been over two years now, that I have been specifically studying growing United Pentecostal churches within our fellowship. I have the privilege of being in many churches throughout the year. Uh, I would imagine I'll be in probably three different churches just this week. Uh, and uh, that's fairly normal, at least a church or two or three every week. And I go to some churches that are growing, some churches that are not growing, some churches that are plateaued. And I decided a couple of years ago that I was going to begin studying why some of our churches are growing and why others of our churches are not growing. And I put together a list of the unique characteristics of growing United Pentecostal churches. And I modified that list, uh, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly. And over the last two years, I've kept a running account of it in my computer. And every time I would go to a growing church, I would list the things that I felt contributed to the growth of that particular church that I was visiting. As I would uh, go through my list from various churches that I would visit, I would find out that there were some things that were uh, universal in all growing churches. In other words, the same characteristics of this growing church I found in another growing church. And then in three and four and then many of our growing churches I found had the same characteristics. Some of the same principles that they were growing by. And so I've developed a list of eight unique characteristics of growing United Pentecostal churches. And I want to go through that very quickly before we get into talking about the plateaued church. Number one, I found out that all growing United Pentecostal churches are worshiping churches. I have never gone to a church that was a growing church that was a church that had uh, a, 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 a rapid growth or revival, as we call it, in the United Pentecostal Church, that was not also a worshiping church. The Bible teaches us that we enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. It is the proper approach to God. We understand that, but there's more to it than that. Growing churches are churches that are excited about God, excited about their relationship uh, with God, excited about uh, the testimonies of new people, what God's doing in their uh, individual lives and in the collective body of the church, and that excitement shows up in their worship. Worship is a tremendous selling point, if you'll allow me to use a, a carnal phrase. I know we don't like to talk about selling the church, but uh, in essence, that's what we're doing. Our Pentecostal worship is a tremendous selling point in the 90s for United Pentecostal churches because people today are looking for churches that worship like we've worshipped for the last 50 years or more. I was attending a seminar in Virginia taught by Dr. Elmer Towns, who is the president of Church Growth Institute, also the associate dean of Liberty University. Uh, about 200 ministers there, the same as today. And to my knowledge, only three of us that were there were Pentecostal. And he was telling this group of predominantly Baptist ministers. 
if you're going to grow in the 90s, if you're going to reach baby boomers, he said, you're going to have to close the lid on your pipe organ and lock it and throw the key away. He said, find yourself a keyboard or a piano to put on the platform. And then he said, find somebody that knows how to play it Pentecostal style. He said, because what people are looking for in the 90s is Pentecostal style worship. I just read an article yesterday of this church in Toronto that's having uh, 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 services where they're having exuberant worship and people are falling out on the floor and laughing and they're calling it drunk on the spirit. And I was reading that yesterday, how that in the last 90 days there have been more than 10,000 people that have walked through the doors of this church that 90 days ago ran about eight or 900 in their services, but more than 10,000 people have visited their church services in the last 90 days just to see why these people are so happy. Why is their worship so exuberant? Why are they laughing? Why are they uh, uh, drunk on the Spirit, as, as you say? And so worship is a very important part of a growing church. I don't believe that you can have a growing church unless your church is a worshiping church. This is the one characteristic that is present in every growing church that I have ever visited in my lifetime. I was thinking about Brother Mangan last night, Brother Anthony Mangan's father, uh, last night when we were sitting on the platform and Brother Mike Williams was going through the, the list of Jesus's in the A's this and the B's that and the C's this. And Brother G.A. Mangan stood up back there beside us and threw his arm out and said, that's what I've been trying to say. And uh, I thought that was so cute and unique. It wasn't but just two or three years ago that uh, we had such a tremendous service at General Conference where the Spirit of God was moving in a powerful way. And there was tremendous worship. You could feel it in one balcony. It seemed like it would sweep across the floor and up into the other balcony. And like a pendulum, it would sweep back again. Uh, across that audience and people run and jumped and shouted and, and uh, the preacher didn't get to preach that night. You may remember the night Vincent Sinan stood to the pulpit and made the statement at our general conference, I believe you United Pentecostal Church people love the name of Jesus more than anybody on the face of the earth. Now he had no idea what a statement like that would do to a United Pentecostal Church conference. I mean we worshipped, we ran, we jumped. If you were there you remember what I'm talking about. Brother Teclamarian that night ran and ran and ran and he'd sit on the front of the platform and wave uh, fan himself with a handkerchief until he got his breath and there he'd go again running and that's the way it was all over the building and that night going back to the hotel uh, got on the elevator there was a man and woman already on the elevator I got on the elevator right behind me brother G.A. Mangan got on the elevator and I'll never forget this this man and woman standing in the back I assumed they were a minister and wife although I'm ashamed to say that they were a minister and wife, but uh, they were standing there, every hair in place. I mean, they looked absolutely perfect. Their clothes were not only did they have coordinated what they had on, they were coordinated with each other. They looked like Barbie and Ken standing there in the back of the elevator, as near perfect as you've ever seen in your lifetime. Their Bibles matched their shoes. Everything they had was right. But they stood in the back of that elevator all straight and erect and talking to each other and evidently they didn't know who Brother Mangan was or else they were dumber than two sled tracks but they, uh, they began to talk to one another they said wasn't that a bunch of foolishness tonight 
All that running and jumping and hollering and screaming. When are we going to mature beyond that? When are we going to learn that we don't have to act that way? This is the conversation they're having with one another. And how embarrassed they were of that service. And we had political people there that night. And we had people there uh, in the service that night that were uh, uh, from other religious organizations. And they were just expressing how embarrassed they were that we had worshipped and shouted and run and jumped like that. Brother Mangan's just leaning on the wall over there and I'm thinking any second now, you know, uh, something's going to explode here and we got to the floor where Brother Mangan got off. He got to the door, turned around and looked at them and he said, he said, you show me a church that don't worship God and I'll show you a church that don't have babies. He said, God shut Michael's womb for making fun of David worshiping God. And I thought to myself, buddy, now there's a lesson to learn that this young fellow's not ever going to forget. Every growing church I've ever visited is a worshiping church. Number two, every growing church, and I'll hurry right through. Every growing church that I've ever visited has a uh, prayer program in place in the church. By that I don't mean uh, uh, they just emphasize prayer or they just preach prayer. But every church that I've gone to that is a growing church, they have a program of prayer. They have ladies prayer, youth prayer. They have Saturday evening prayer, all night prayer meetings, 24-hour prayer chains. There is programs of prayer or opportunities for prayer within the church for everybody who is a part of the church. And so prayer programs are a part of all growing churches that I've ever attended or visited. Number three is a visionary pastor. A visionary pastor. I believe it's more important to be a visionary than it is to be a great pulpiteer. In fact, some of the greatest pastors in some of the fastest growing churches that we have in the United Pentecostal Church are pastored by men that are not great pulpiteers. Uh, some of the fastest growing churches we have in our fellowship are pastored by men that will never preach in your district conference or a national conference. They'll not preach camp meetings, but they are building great churches. And the key to this is they are men of vision. They are driven by a vision. They are living their vision, their vision is or has consumed every part of them, they have a goal they have a dream and so a visionary pastor I have found is a part of every growing United Pentecostal church. Number four I have found out that every growing United Pentecostal church has a high percentage of membership involvement. A high percentage of membership involvement. Brother, uh, I say brother by faith, John Maxwell taught us uh, just a couple of months ago, the Pareto principle, the 80-20 principle. And many of us have studied that for several years concerning the uh, fact that 80% of the work of your church is usually done by 20% of the people. 80% of the finances is usually given by 20% of the people. In growing churches, very often, this principle does not apply. I have found out in churches that are growing rapidly that there is a very high uh, volume of membership involvement. It's more than 20%. It's 30%, 40%, 50%. 
people in the church are made to feel involved. People are, giving an are given an opportunity for involvement. The last year that I pastored in Newport News was one of the greatest years of growth that we had in that church. We had a banner across the front of the church that entire year, last year of my pastorate there, that said, No uh, ministry, no membership. I got that out of a book I read by Bill Hybels and the phrase just stuck. No ministry, no membership. Bill Hybels who pastors a church of 15,000 people has made the statement, I don't want 15,000 members. He said, I want 15,000 ministers. And, and when you join his church and fill out a membership form, on the membership form you have to write down what your ministry is going to be in the church. You have to show how you are going to be a part of the success of that local church uh, there in the Schaumburg area of Illinois. And so uh, we decided the last year that I pastored there that we were going to promote every member of the church becoming actively involved in some type of ministry within the church that would cause the church to grow. And uh, as we began to preach this, I was astounded at how unprepared we really were for uh, involving every person in the church. I come out of the chute like gangbusters. I preached it the first night and uh, just literally give it all I had that this year everybody's going to get involved and if you're not involved I don't even know if you can go up in the rapture. I mean I preached it hard. Everybody this year is going to do something that's going to cause our church to be a success. And I was flocked after church. I mean literally there was the, the altar and around the podium was full after church of people that were saying, Pastor you touched our heart tonight. We want a job. I had one problem. I preached involvement but I didn't have a job for everybody. And I found out that immediately my first responsibility was going to be to find everybody a job in the church. I put a team together that week. I told them, I want you to find me 225 jobs that can be done in the church. We had about that many adults at that time. I said, I want that many jobs in the church available that when people come to me and say, I want a job, I want a list of things to choose from. In their first meeting, they found 165 uh, jobs and wrote a paragraph on each of them among all of their committee members and came up with a tremendous list just in their first meeting. We used Brother Dehart's book on uh, So You Want to Serve. In there, there's a gifts analysis or a gifts inventory. We let the people that wanted a job take that, found out where their areas of strengths were. We took the 165 jobs and we divided them up in the same categories that are in Brother Dehart's gifts analysis. And then when somebody came to us, wanted a job, we let them take the gifts analysis found out where their top three levels of strengths were and then let them choose a job from those three categories. And so we found out immediately that if we was going to involve everybody that we had to make an opportunity for them to work. You know, we take the 11th hour laborers that are uh, in the Gospels. You know, the Bible says they're asked, why stand ye idle in the marketplace at the 11th hour? And we take those dudes and we hang them over hell for being lazy and being idle in the marketplace in the 11th hour. And the Bible tells us, if you just read one more verse, their answer is potent. Their answer is, because no man hath hired us. Now that puts the responsibility somewhere else. 
It doesn't put the responsibility on the individual. It puts the responsibility on the person that is in leadership to give or to make opportunities for involvement for everybody who wants to be involved. And so I found out that in growing churches, there, are, uh, uh, there is a high percentage of membership involvement. When we started preaching for folks to get involved, I had one 74-year-old man and his wife nearly the same age that came to me and said, Brother Cunningham, we want to be involved with tears. What can we do? And uh, I was trying to think what we could have them to do. And I gave them our visitor follow-up uh, uh, letters. And we, we would print out letters on the computer. We can do it almost as soon as uh, a person registers at the front door, the way we have it set up at our church. Uh, their name, address, city, state, zip, phone number goes right into the computer data bank and it shoots a, a letter out to them. The letter literally could be written before they ever find a seat in the sanctuary. And uh, we give these letters out to this elderly couple. They take the letter home with them, fold it up, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it. We provided them everything, the envelopes, the stamps, and the letters, and, and all of that. But they take it home, and on Monday, they spend about a half a day uh, working on these envelopes and letters and putting the stamps on them and taking them to the post office. Something our secretary could do in 20 minutes and be over with. But this elderly couple does it, and it is their ministry, and they cry over it, and they pray and ask God to touch each of these people, and it's become a ministry to them. I had another couple, about 60 in the church, that came to me and said, Brother Cunningham, we want to be involved. And we know the church has a, the church has a couple buses and a couple vans, and they live about 30 minutes from us. And they said, uh, we'd like to buy a van, and we'd like to bring young people and children from our neighborhood to church with us. And so we agreed that Brother and Sister Adkins should buy a van. They bought it themselves. They insured it themselves, put the license on it themselves, put it in the name of the church, and then they started bringing people from their neighborhood. I'll guarantee you as sure as I'm standing here they had 12 or 15 or more on their van this last Sunday coming from their neighborhood 30 minutes away coming to the church. We begin to preach everybody's got to get involved. Everybody needs to find a ministry. Everybody needs to do something. My mother who attends our church there and uh, well up in years and not very in very good health. I give my absentee list to my mother. I used to call the absentees myself and I give the list to her and now at home through the week my mother would call the absentees. I found out sometimes folks would get a little ruffled if the pastor called or if, a, or if an elder or a minister called to find out why they weren't in church or tell them we missed them uh, being in church but when grandma called nobody got upset. Everybody's happy. I'm starting to get thank you notes. Thank you for letting Sister Hilda Cunningham call to find out why we wasn't in church and I, again they'd get upset if elders called but they're happy when uh, these folks called so I'm saying all that to say that everybody in the church needs to find a job. Every person in the church needs to be involved in the success of the church. Number five, I found out that all growing United Pentecostal churches maintain a high level of faith. They believe that God is going to give them their city. They believe that God is going to do healings and miracles among them. They believe, Brother Williams, that the dragon shall not prevail. There is a very high level of faith within the church and that feeling is, is uh, 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 predominant when you go into the service. You'll hear testimonies of what God is doing. You'll hear it in their worship. There's no boo-hooing and crying. Uh, they're not negative. They're not getting up talking about what all the devil's been doing and how powerful he is and how he's whooping up on everybody in the church. You don't hear that in these type of churches. They have a high level of faith in the power of God. Number six is giving. 
I found out that all growing churches are giving churches. They give to a mission and or evangelism program that, uh, that is, uh, takes place outside their walls. They're committed to things that are affecting their world. The Bible tells us in Luke 6 and 38, Give and it shall be given unto you. Uh, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. And then here comes the clincher. For with the same measure... That you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. You know, you can come up to this altar and bow your knees and cry, Bless me, bless me, bless me. And shed tears and scream and holler until you lose your voice. Begging God for His blessings. But this verse lets us know that the valve that turns on and off the blessings of God is in our hand. It's not in heaven. That, that, that valve that turns on the blessings of God is not in heaven. It's not up there by the throne. It's right down here in your hands and mine. The same measure that you mete out, it's going to be meet back to you again. As you give to God, God is going to use that same measuring stick and cause blessings to come to you. If you give stingily, you're going to receive stingily. If you give bountifully, you're going to receive bountifully. And so I found out that all growing United Pentecostal churches are giving churches otherwise they could not have the blessings of God upon them number seven is an aggressive plan of evangelism an aggressive plan of evangelism growing United Pentecostal churches understand that evangelism is the purpose of the church everybody said the purpose of the church evangelism is the purpose of the church. Now we've got a lot of things that we're involved in as a church. We have a lot of fellowship in our United Pentecostal churches today. And I thank the Lord for that. But you cannot find in your Bible where God called us to fellowship with one another as it being our primary purpose. Yet many of our churches have made it a primary purpose. If you don't believe me, pick up the church bulletin and look at it. On Monday night, you got Boy Scouts. And Tuesday night, the youth are playing basketball. And Wednesday night's Bible study. And Thursday night singles. And Friday night's something else. And Saturday, we work on the buses. And Sunday, we're in church all day. And next Monday's the old folks. And the second Tuesday of every month is the single mothers. And then Wednesday, Bible study. And the third Thursday of every month, we've got all the young married couples here for fellowship we've got everybody in the home in a fellowship but the poodle dog and somebody's going to get a burden for him before long and say those poor little poodle dogs been left at home by themselves all this time we need to get them out here to church on the fourth Thursday of every month and have a little fellowship for the poodle dogs that's all that's left hello that's all that's left and the reason that many of our churches are not winning lost people is because we have moved our focus from evangelism to scratching one another's back, to enjoying one another's fellowship, to praying one another through again, to just having more time with one another for more dinners and more meetings and more discussions. And if we don't get back to evangelism, then we, in local churches I'm talking to here today, are not going to have the growth that we must have if we're going to reach and affect our world. 
This church was not built on fellowship. The United Pentecostal Church was built on evangelism. We have criticism every now and then for some of the forefathers that jumped trains and went from place to place preaching and, and uh, left a 50 here and 25 there and 75 over here. And uh, they set up a tent meeting and had 100 get the Holy Ghost and then they left town. And We criticize that. But I'm going to tell you, I'd rather have that today than us be gathered in our churches and comfortable and nobody doing nothing to reach the world outside around us. Can you say amen? amen? Growing churches are churches that have an aggressive plan of evangelism. We had very aggressive evangelism in the church I pastored. We had great growth in our church. My wife and I started the church in Newport News 14 years ago, October the 9th, 14 years ago. And her and I and one lady, 74 years old, was in our first service. That was the birth of the church in Newport News. When I resigned the church, uh, they were averaging about 325 in the Newport News church. We had planted three daughter churches. Two of them had full-time pastors. Altogether, we had well over five. 500 people that would meet on Sunday morning and Sunday night filled with the Holy Ghost living for God a tremendous growing revival church and uh, and the church is still growing I'm glad to tell you that it's larger today than when I left it that growth is continuing but we did some very aggressive things we put a big banner up on the wall we've about destroyed and had to repaint and re uh, uh, replaster our walls I would guess a half a dozen times because I've got banners everywhere around that church I don't worship a building. The building's just a meeting place. And so we've always got something stuck in the wall or painted on the wall or something up there to get somebody's attention. And uh, we had a big banner on the wall that was a map of the area that was our zip code, 23602. And one year our plan was mission, 23602. And we had a bullseye in the middle where the church was and lines going out. And we took markers and we marked every street in that zip code that our people would knock the doors and witness to people. We wanted to cover that entire zip code area in one year. Newport News, by the way, has a population of about 240,000 people. It sits on the Virginia Peninsula, which is 480,000 people altogether in the middle of Tidewater, Virginia. That's a million and a half. So I'm not talking about a little tiny place, but we had determined that we were going to affect that area uh, in one year's time. We were going to knock as many doors as we possibly could and invite these folks out to church and talk to them about the Lord. We've had several programs that were very, very aggressive. I got up one time on a first Sunday of October and told the folks that for the next three months, the last three months of the year, October, November and December, we're not going to have any programs, we're not going to have any departments, we're not going to have any choir practice, we're not going to have any Sunday school. I know it sounds radical, but I shut everything down for three months. I said for the next three months we are going to win the loss. For three months we're going to put evangelism as the central focus of our church. That was in our uh, 11th year I believe or maybe the 12th year that we were there and uh, I told the choir I said you don't need to have four or five hours of choir practice every week you've been singing together for 10 years now surely you know 12 songs you can sing the next 12 Sunday nights I'm tired of choir members telling me that they can't win the loss because they sing in the choir hello 
I'm tired of Sunday school teachers telling me they can't win the loss because they teach a Sunday school class. Or department heads can't win the loss because they're running a department. Or, a de or an assistant department head can't teach a Bible study because of their duties with a department. So for three months we shut down all 28 departments. We shut down the choir. We shut down the Sunday school. And Sunday morning, Sunday night, and midweek service for three months we had evangelistic service. I was the evangelist. And in that three months time we added 50 brand new adults to our church God blessed that emphasis or that effort that was put on evangelism when we started the departments back up in January and I met with those department heads again I handed all of them a sheet of paper and I told them that the purpose of the church from now on is going to be the seeking and the saving of lost people seeking is evangelism saving is discipleship and from now on that is the central focus of our church we're going to decide in this planning meeting, I told them, whether or not we're going to reopen your department. Here's what you've got to do on the sheet of paper that was handed you. You've got to show us how your department is seeking and saving the lost. If your department is not seeking and saving the lost, then we don't need it this year. Now that's probably more radical than you wanted to hear today. Praise God, hallelujah. Number eight is leadership training. And I'm not even going to touch that. We just had a tremendous seminar here with John Maxwell. I'll remind you what he said. Everything rises and falls on leadership. I found out that growing United Pentecostal churches are actively involved in multiplying their ministry or training leaders and equipping leaders and putting them into the harvest. I don't think you can do anything that will uh, affect your church in a more positive way than to begin to invest yourself in young men and young women within your church. When I started the church in Newport News, I told you my wife and I and one lady, I didn't have a lot of leaders that I could choose from. When we won new people, friend, we won sinners. We were out on the East Coast. Newport News is on that little peninsula that sticks out in the ocean uh, on the East Coast. We were right on the cutting edge. We didn't have churches around us that we could, uh, that we could uh, uh, have folks move from their church into our church. We didn't have folks moving in. What we had was sinner folks to work with. And we began to win people and they were rough and crude and hard and, and full of sin. And it took a while to turn their lives around and and all of us are still in that process. And uh, it was tough to develop leaders. And then it dawned on me one day that I've got a group of young people. I was the youth president of Virginia nine years. And so everywhere I went, I took my young people with me. And it dawned on me one day, I've got a row or two or three of young people that are red hot, on fire, living for God. And I'm going to start using these young people. I want them to have their excitement in the pulpit. I let young people lead the singing when I didn't have a song leader. I let young people help me, travel with me. I poured myself into them. Brother Cunningham, did it pay off? Well, let me just tell you a little bit. The man that's the pastor of the church today, who's the youth president of the Virginia district, Jared Arango, I pastored him since he was nine years old. Today he's the pastor of the church and uh, youth president of the whole Virginia district. Brother Kinsey can tell you 
one of the sharpest young men we have in the United Pentecostal Church today. His wife Maria came to our church, a Catholic girl at age 15, and joined that youth group. The assistant pastor of our Newport News Church, who is the Sunday school director for the state of Virginia. I've had him since he was 19 years old and his wife. I've had her in the church since she was about 12 years old, came to church the first time on our Sunday school bus. That is not only the leaders of the fastest growing church for the last two years in the whole United Pentecostal Church. They've won the, the Sunday school award for being the fastest growing church, but they're also leaders of the Virginia district leading their departments very effectively. But I started working with them when they were teenagers because I didn't have anybody else to draw from. I want you to know today, you listen carefully to what I'm telling you, don't wait until you've got ushers like Brother Mangan has over it because of the times. Don't wait until you've got a Terry Shock uh, come alongside you. Men like that don't just walk in off the street and say, here I am with all my abilities and I'm ready to help you. You need to take what you have and begin to pour yourself into them. Young men, young women, people that have a burden, people that have a vision. Maybe they don't know how to do it, but you can teach them and train them how to do it. I think one of the most powerful things that Maxwell taught us at Because of the Times was how to train a leader. I don't know that we all uh, got the principle, but it was powerful. The little uh, diagram that he drew there. He said, first of all, you're doing the job by yourself. And if you're going to train a leader, you bring that leader or potential leader alongside of you. You do it and they watch you do it. And then you do it and they're helping you do it. And then they begin to do it and you're helping them. And then they move into where they're doing it and you're just watching them. And then the last stage is they're doing it all by themselves and it lets you go on and train somebody else. We want to be able to hand somebody a job and just say, go do that job. That's not leadership training. Leadership training is when you work alongside them, train them and help them. I made Brother Mike Easter, who is now the, the Sunday school director, as I said, for all of Virginia, the assistant pastor of the church. About 10 years ago, I made him the Sunday school superintendent of our local church. Now I promise you the first year he was Sunday school superintendent really I was Sunday school superintendent. I told him what to do, when to do it, how to do it, where to do it. I told him everything we needed to do, every plan, every program, every idea. But there came a point where he took it and began to run with it. Put a little of his uh, character in it and a little of his flavor in it. And he began to come up with innovative ideas. And then he began to run it all by himself. And today he's one of the most innovative Sunday school men that we have anywhere in the United Pentecostal Church. But you start out by training people by walking alongside them or bringing them alongside you. Now let me hurry. I've taken half my time to talk about that. Let me talk to you now about the plateaued church. First of all, what is a plateaued church? Let me give you Lyle Schaller's definition of a plateaued church. Lyle Schaller is considered one of the foremost church growth analysts and church certainly one of the greatest church growth writers that is anywhere in the, uh, in the uh, North American continent today. He said a plateaued church is a church which has recorded less than a 10%, now listen to this, increase or decrease in average during the past five years. A plateaued church is a church which has recorded less than a 10% increase or decrease in average attendance during the past five years. If you were running 100 five years ago and you're running 100 today, maybe you've had 
A hundred get the Holy Ghost in those five years. But today you're still running a hundred. You are plateaued or you are simply maintaining. The key to church growth is not how many you have get the Holy Ghost. It's how many you're able to retain. Remember this. The bottom line of church growth is the word retention. All of church growth can be wrapped up in that one word, retention. It's what you are able to retain. If you have a hundred going out the back door and you've got a hundred coming in the front door, you are not growing, you're maintaining. You are at a plateaued state. Now what's worse than that is if you've got a hundred going out the back door and only 50 coming in the front door, then you're in decline. The key is, is to hold on to what you've got and have more come in than what goes out each year in order to have a growing church. Now, let me give you some church growth statistics concerning the United Pentecostal Church. And uh, this is not in your notes, but you may want to write it down on the side over here. Church growth strategists, first of all, estimated that 80% or 280,000 of America's churches are plateaued. Only 20% of America's churches are considered to be growing churches. 80% of them are plateaued churches. Now, we sent out a survey in 1992 to every pastor in the United Pentecostal Church of North America. Of the 3,700 surveys we sent out, we had 1,018 responses. A polling company in Indianapolis told us for our survey to be effective, we would have to have 800 responses. If we had a minimum of 800 responses, then we would uh, have an effective or a, or a pretty clear sampling of the United Pentecostal Church. And so 1,018 responses was certainly more than what we had to have. Of those 1,018 responses, 21% of the responses said that their church was in decline, that they had less this year than they did last year. 21% said they were in decline. 26% of the churches that responded said that their churches were growing. That's about one quarter, 26%. But notice this, 53% of our churches answered the question that they were maintaining or they were plateaued as a church. They were not growing and they were not declining. They were stalemated. They were on dead center. They were plateaued. Now, just as I have worked on a list trying to isolate the unique characteristics of a growing United Pentecostal church, I've recently begun a study on the characteristics of a plateaued church. And again, I'm dealing with United Pentecostal churches. There are books out there about growing churches. Uh, Elmer Town puts out a book every year, The Ten Fastest Growing Churches in America. It's uh, churches from many denominations, but not everything that he lists in his book are applicable to a United Pentecostal church. And so it is with plateaued United Pentecostal churches. So I begin to list some of the challenges that I believe contribute to uh, the, the, the stalemating, forgive me for uh, uh, not finding a nicer term than that to use, but the stalemating uh, of a United Pentecostal church or uh, the fact that we're not growing or declining but just staying right where we are. Number one, and I'll hurry along. Number one, first and foremost, I believe is a lack of clear vision. A lack of clear or defined vision. Now when I say vision, uh, we have several words we use in the church. Vision, dream, goal, mission. All of these words are synonymous in our thinking uh, concerning the vision, the dream, the burden, the goal, or the mission of the church. In Proverbs 29 and 18, the Bible said, Where there is no vision, the people perish. 
Now the obvious application of that verse, and we've all used it this way, is that when the pulpit or the leadership doesn't have a vision, then the people that are in the pew are going to perish. And I want you to know that that is a valid and probably the, the first and foremost application of that verse. That if you don't have a vision as a leader, then your church is not going to go forward. Your church is not going to succeed. You need a vision of where you want to be tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, three years from now, five years from now. As, as long as you're going to be in the city where you pastor, what do you intend to accomplish? What do you intend to do in that city as a pastor and as a church in the way of affecting that city? And if you don't have that kind of a dream or a vision or a goal and communicate that to the people then we're not going to be going anywhere. We're going to be in what Zig Ziglar calls uh, the land of wondering generalities. We just take whatever comes our way. We just handle it service by service. If God moves Sunday night, great. We'll shout and have a good time. But we have no plan for next Sunday night or next month or next year. And one of the reasons that we don't ever get where we're going is because we have no goal or we have no target to shoot at. We're, many of us are like Charlie Brown. You know, Charlie Brown... Uh, cartoon, forgive me for mentioning that, but Charlie Brown, one of the cartoons on him, he's standing in the backyard with a bow and arrow, and he puts an arrow in the bow, and he pulls it back and shoots the fence, and then he picks up a can of white paint and a paintbrush and runs up there and draws a circle around the arrow, and then he comes back, picks up the bow, and shoots it into a wood fence again, and runs up and draws a, a white circle around it, and Big Mouth Lucy comes up and says, Charlie Brown, what you doing? He said, when you do it this way, you never miss. And that's exactly what many of our United Pentecostal churches are guilty of. No vision, no dream, no goal, no specific mission or burden or purpose. It's just take it as it comes. Uh, we have somebody wander in the church and get the Holy Ghost and baptized. We come pulling on Brother Tenney's coattail at district conference. And we want to get up and tell about the guy that got the Holy Ghost last Sunday night. Nobody taught him a Bible study. Nobody knocked on his door. Nobody brought him on a bus. Nobody's decided. He just walked in off the street. Nobody knows how he got there. You don't have a right to testify about that, dude. You're wanting to draw a circle around an arrow that happenstancely hit the fence. Hello? One of the greatest problems that we have in our churches is that we do not communicate what we want to accomplish in our town to the people that God has given us to work with. The more people, and here comes another carnal term, but the more people that buy into our vision and buy into our dream, the greater the possibility of that dream or vision becoming a reality in our city. If I can get this man and that one and this sister and that sister to join hands with me and believe God with me and work with me, common goal, there's a lot better chance of me accomplishing great things for God than me just allowing this thing to wander any way it wants to go with no specific direction. Amen? Got to involve as many people as you can in your dream, in your vision, in your goal. Everybody you can get involved, the more chance of it becoming a success. Now, the first application of Proverbs 29, 18 is that if the leadership don't have a vision, then the people are going to perish. But let me tell you something. There's another application to that. The Bible said where there is no vision, the people perish. I want you to know that if you don't have a vision, your ministry is going to perish. 
If you don't have a vision, your ministry is going nowhere. If you don't have a vision, your ministry is plateaued. If you're just trying to find a sermon to fill because you have the responsibility of filling the pulpit three times a week. If you're just out searching for messages and you're not driven by a dream that comes out in every message you preach. If you're not driven by a goal. I don't, I'm hesitating even to say this lest I look foolish before you. But when we had 10 and 15 people in our city. Where's Brother Fleming at? I saw you in here. Brother Fleming used to be in Virginia. He visited my church when we had 8 and 10 and 12 people just starting off. In fact, me and him swapped vehicles one time. I swapped a, an old van for him that he about had to push home and I took an old Jeep off of him that I about had to push home. And uh, that's back when we were really in home missions. But Brother Fleming can tell you that I preached when I had 8 and 10 and 12 people. In our city is the Hampton Coliseum. Seats 3,500 people. And someday we're going to have church in the Hampton Coliseum. I've preached entire sermons about that. Someday we're going to fill it up. I described to the people what it's going to be like. They're going to be getting the Holy Ghost up in this balcony. And you're going to see waves of the glory of God come across that place. And there are going to be healings out here and healings over there. And people talking in tongues up here. And the elders are going to be lined up across the front praying for sick people. And we didn't have enough to fill one row when I was preaching that. What are you doing? I'm preaching my vision, preaching my dream, preaching my goal that someday we've got something we're shooting at. We're going somewhere. I told them when we moved into our first little building that would seat about 100 people and we had 8 or 10. I told them someday this building's going to be full and we're going to have people standing around the walls. We're going to have to put the windows up and people will stand outside because they won't be able to get in. I lived to see that happen. I didn't just say it one time. I preached it to our people that this is going to happen. We moved from there into a school gymnasium, a grade school gymnasium. And I told him this isn't going to hold us. We doubled in that grade school gymnasium. And then we moved into the building where we are now. We bought an old skating rink, 100 feet wide, 200 feet long, and turned it into a church. Put a sanctuary in the middle of it that would seat about 450 people. And I told the church, we're going to grow. We moved into that building. Our very first Sunday in that building, we had 149. The one year later to the month, we were averaging 200. 150 in Sunday school. The church grew 100 the first year in the new building. Why? Because we've kept the vision ahead of the people. We've kept the dream alive. It's not going to die. It's never going to be allowed to die. We're going somewhere. I told them, don't worry about this building. This is just a building. This is not a church. Don't anybody fall in love with it. If you tend to fall in love with buildings, sit in a different seat every time you come to church. I don't want you to find a seat that's yours. I don't want you to find a parking place you think is yours I don't want you to ever think I love this building I helped build it someday and I'm standing in the middle of the sanctuary I said someday we're going to play basketball in here or have dinners in here this is just a building it's not going to hold what God's going to do in this city that's what I mean by preaching your vision keeping it alive in front of the people getting them involved in your vision and if you don't have a vision that drives you then you also are going to perish or you're going to plateau you're not going to go forward in the kingdom of God in the area of your ministry now one of the most obvious characteristics of a church that is suffering from vision problems is when the church has clearly moved from being an evangelism philosophy church to being a maintenance philosophy church 
Have you ever wondered why some churches, a guy will go into a city and almost overnight he's got, a, he's got a family or two. We hear about it all over the district. And next year we come back to conference, he's got three or four families. And then he's got 40 people. Then he's got 50 people. Then he hits 75, which is the national average of churches of any denomination is an average of 75 in attendance. According to our Easter attendance in the United Pentecostal Church, we're about 101. But we all know that's high because it's Easter. So I imagine we're somewhere in there around average or a little higher than average with, with our churches in the United Pentecostal Church. But if you noticed, a guy will go like gangbusters year one, year two, year three, year four. He'll get about 75 people. He comes to camp driving a new car, got on some nice duds. You heard he just moved into his first house. But for the next three, four, five, six, seven years, he runs 75. You know what the difference is? He has just moved from being an evangelism philosophy church into being a maintenance philosophy church. When he come to a point where he quit preaching evangelism, he quit preaching Acts 2.38, he quit preaching salvation in every service, he quit talking, giving an altar call every time people come together, and he started fellowshipping and having dinners and having fun and ball games and blah, 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 blah. And I, don't, I like all of that. Our men like to play ball. I'm not being critical. But when you allow all of those things to take the the place of evangelism you have made a mistake you have you have driven the nails in the coffin of your own local church hello so when a church ceases to be an evangelism philosophy church and begins to be a maintenance philosophy church let me tell you the difference in an evangelism philosophy church and a maintenance philosophy church number one an evangelism philosophy church understands and meets the real needs of real people I'll explain that a little more after a bit. B, it understands, not agrees with, but understands the attitude of this present generation. That's an evangelist philosophy church. They know what makes people in the 90s tick. They know how to reach people in the 90s, how to relate to them. You don't have to agree with them to be able to talk to them and relate to them, understand where they're coming from, the pressures and the battles that they're living with. They understand the needs of this present generation. C, their preaching and teaching is relevant and functional in an evangelism philosophy church. You know, people that come to your church in 1990s, they want the church to be functional. They want you to help them to know how to stay married. They want you to help them to know how to raise their kids. I saw on the cover of the Reader's Digest magazine this week, checking out of the uh, grocery store, the Reader's Digest magazine said how to raise G-rated kids in an X-rated world. That'd make a good sermon at a, at a youth camp or Sunday school camp somewhere. How to raise G-rated kids in an X-rated world on the front of your Reader's Digest. People that come to your church today, they want the church to give them the answer to that question. They want the church to tell them how to keep their kids from being hoodlums and ended up in jail or on drugs or, or pregnant or whatever. Uh, they want the church to tell them how to stay married in a society where 51% of first marriages end in divorce and 61% of second marriages end in divorce. They want the church to tell them how to be happy in a world that is so filled with unhappiness happiness and so filled with pain they want the church believe it or not to tell them how to balance a checkbook they want the church to tell them how to function in life 
I had four Sundays that I uh, announced on the radio, put out flyers. I treated myself like I was the evangelist. And I billed myself in our town just like I was a, an outside evangelist. Put my picture on a flyer and said for the next four Sundays, Pastor Cunningham is going to be teaching. And I, and, I, and I listed the subjects. Raising children according to the scripture. Loving your marriage enough to fight for it. How to beat the budget crunch. And then the fourth one was on Father's Day. And it was a message just to fathers. Four Sundays in a row. And I thought, I thought I'll just check and see if anybody wants to come and hear these, these specific subjects that deal with real problems that are in our world today. And on the very first Sunday we did that, we had a 10% growth in our adult class. And for every consecutive Sunday after that, we showed 10% every Sunday growth over the previous Sunday as a result of dealing with these specific subjects that dealt with real problems that people are facing and they need answers to and they're not getting answers in the world. The world's answer for safe sex is to use a condom. That's not the answer that mom and dad wants for their children. I don't care how promiscuous mom and dad has been, they want their children to stay chaste and pure and not have to suffer the same things they've suffered. And if you can help them to help their children stay away from drugs and premarital sex and things that are going to harm them, you're going to get the attention of the baby boomer generation in 1995. And so, see in your notes that preaching and teaching is relevant. It's functional. It relates to where we are today. Uh, I heard by Bill Hybels again say this, and you may or may not appreciate this. Uh, uh, treat this like a piece of uh, T-bone steak. Eat the meat and spit out the bones, okay? But Bill Hybels talking about preparing sermons. Remember, he preaches to 15,000 different people every weekend. Their building only seats 3,000, but they have church Saturday night and four or five services on Sunday in order to take care of all the crowd that is going to be there over the weekend. And when he's preparing his main Sunday weekend sermon, he said he'll go to various places in town to prepare that sermon. He said he'll go and sit in a mall and watch people go by and he'll pick people out that are milling around stores and he'll ask himself does this message relate to her? She's got a little baby and no wedding ring. She's a single mother. Does my message relate to her? Am I going to say something that's going to help her? He'll see an old dirty guy coming down the way and say man there comes an old drunk. Does my message relate to him? Here comes a man, no wife, no kids with him. Does my message relate to him? Uh, you may or may not like this. He talked about one Sunday he was going to preach to sinners and he thought where can I find sinners? at. So he went to the local bar, set up over in the corner, found him a table and a chair and wrote his sermon notes. Now I don't think I could cross that line but I'm telling you he wanted to know how to relate to sinners and when he got in the pulpit he wanted to know what to say to them and how to say it and be able to say things they'd relate to that he could tell them about the pain and the suffering that was out there that he saw and say things that he knew they were having to deal with every day. He said every week when he puts a sermon together, it's all typewritten, it's all done. He said, I sit down at my desk. He said, I take about six or eight metal chairs and set them around my desk, in front of the desk. And then I get the yellow post-it note papers. And he said, I put a piece on the back of each chair. And on one chair, he said, I put uh, elderly saint or church member. He said, I got people I pastor that have been faithful for years. I want to make sure I'm ministering to them. And next to that, I put a teenager. And next to that, in that chair, he said, I'll put an unsaved husband. Because every weekend, there's some mamas and some kids that have begged and pleaded daddy to 
come to church with him, he's going to be there this Sunday. And in the next chair, I put uh, this unwed mother maybe. In this chair, I put a single. And that chair, I put a young married person. And over here, somebody else. Black, white, Spanish. And he said, I surround myself. And then I sit there and I preach my message to those eight or so empty chairs, making sure that everybody that's going to be in my service on Sunday is going to relate to what I'm preaching. Sometimes we get up and preach things that are way off in the wild blue somewhere that there ain't a human in the building understands what you're talking about. Hello? We have our own Pentecostal language and we'll get to rolling in in what we call the anointing in that Pentecostal language and we're using words and phrases that are 50 years old among us that not one person walking in off the street can relate to. Hello? If you want to preach against women cutting hair in 1995, get up and say you're against women cutting hair. Don't preach a whole sermon on bobbed hair because there ain't nobody in 1995 knows what bobbed hair is. Hello? Say amen or oh me. And so we need to make sure that our our preaching, our teaching is relevant. It's functional. People understand what we're saying. A D in your notes. An evangelism philosophy church is a care-based philosophy ministry care based philosophy ministry foreign missions brother Tenney has had this for years people don't know people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care and that is true in church building it is a if you're going to have a growing church an evangelism philosophy church is a care based philosophy of ministry it it cares for people it nurtures people it includes people it welcomes people it has open arms it makes people feel uh, at home involved etc comfortable Uh, e is it's a relationship oriented church an evangelism philosophy ministry church is a relationship oriented church f in your notes it involves the maximum number of people in goals projects and programs G in your notes, and I'm hurrying through this now, aggressively promotes its evangelism philosophy as a lifestyle. Evangelism philosophy as a lifestyle. It preaches to the people that you're always an evangelist, that every member of the church is an evangelist. It preaches and teaches the people that everybody in the church needs to become involved in evangelism. I don't think there's any job you can hold in the church that excludes you that excludes you from being an evangelist or being having a, 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 a part in the evangelism thrust of the church. In my book here, Organizing for Growth, you'll find in here about eight or ten uh, departments that are outlined for you. It'll give you a job description for eight or so of the basic departments in a small church. It'll also give you a job uh, a description for those and it'll give you a report for those, a monthly report where we ask uh, each of the department heads in the church to fill out a monthly report and turn it in. On every monthly report that we put out in our church in Newport News, the last question on that report is, what is the uh, status of your current home Bible study? That's on every single report. What is the status of your current home Bible study? If a department head or an assistant or anybody that fills out a report turns that back in and says, we don't have a Bible study, it's common for us to have a little meeting with them and talk to them. Because one of the requirements of being involved in our church is you have to actively be involved in reaching the lost. 
And if you're not reaching the lost, and if you ever give the answer, I can't teach a Bible study because of the job I'm doing, then you've given us the, the responsibility of choosing between that job and between you winning lost people. And believe me, winning lost people is always going to take the precedent, and the job is always going to come second. I got one that's right and a couple amens. And Brother Tenney says, what is it, a Methodist? Odd or something like that. Praise God anyway. <laughs> Brother Tenney said Catholic holy water. So an evangelism philosophy church aggressively promotes his evangelism philosophy as a lifestyle. As a lifestyle. I, uh, I told you I was very aggressive as a pastor in the area of evangelism. And I guess I trained the men that came in under me to be just as aggressive and probably more. I think they've... they've uh, They've uh, been even more aggressive than I have. I called my mother a few Sundays ago, and I said to her, or called to the house, and Dad said, your mom's not here. She's out knocking on the neighbor's door. This was Sunday afternoon, and my mom and dad are quite up in years. My dad uh, can't hardly walk, and, and they're, uh, uh, they've had a tough time of it. And, but Mama's out knocking on the neighbor's doors. and So I called back again. She's still not home. She's at another neighbor's house. And I called the third time. She's still not home. She's at another neighbor's house. And so finally when I called home and got a hold of her, I said, Mama, you're out Sunday afternoon knocking doors. That's great. What's going on? She said, Well, Brother Arango, your assistant, said he's, uh, he's just like you are. He got up and announced this morning that we can't come to church tonight unless we have a visitor with us. If you don't have a visitor, stay home. The ushers are going to be at the door, and your ticket to get in is have a visitor with you. And when she told me that, I thought, oh, my, what have I done? And so I thought I better call him and give him a little counsel. I wasn't able to get a hold of him before church. I thought I would tell him, now you can put those ushers at the door, but my recommendation is let anybody in that shows up. Don't really hold to this. I hope you won't hold to it. But I couldn't get a hold of him before church. After church, he called me. He said, did you hear what we did tonight? I said, yeah, that's great. Did anybody bring a visitor? He said, Brother Cunningham, it was standing room only. This is in our new church there, 440 seats. He said, Brother Cunningham, standing room only. We had to have people stand around the back. We put extra chairs out in the lobby. He said, everybody that came brought a visitor with them. And he said, we had 25 brand new people filled with the Holy Ghost tonight on Sunday night. So evangelism becomes a lifestyle. You begin to live it. It's not just talking about it, thinking about it. You live it. And everybody with you begins to live it. Now, if you pastor an old, 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 old established church that Claude is still running the show on your boards, you may not want to do that. The last item in your notes under evangelism philosophy H, letter H, is an evangelism philosophy church has a vision for the future. They are never... Now, you got to hear this. It's not profound, but I want you to hear it. They are never... An evangelism philosophy church is never satisfied with past accomplishments. Never. An evangelism philosophy church is always talking about what they're going to do in the future. Talking about the new ones they're going to reach. The new horizons they're going to conquer. The new goals that have been set. It's not uncommon for an evangelism philosophy church to stand up on an Easter Sunday. Or a Pentecost Sunday. Or a, uh, or a friend day. Where they've got the biggest crowd they've had all year long. And talk about on that day what they're going to do next. 
They're always looking toward the future and never are they satisfied with past accomplishments. Now let me talk to you about the maintenance philosophy church. A in your notes. The maintenance philosophy church does not try to deal with the needs of individuals. Does not even make an attempt at dealing with the needs of individuals. All their programs and all their services are geared to the entire group. It's almost like window shopping when you go to a maintenance philosophy church. All of their goods and all of their wares are behind the glass case. And when you walk in, they tell you we have this program, that program, this fellowship. It's been going on for 39 years. And we've got this group, and we've got that choir, and we've got this thing, and we've got something else. Now here's our wares. If we've got anything that will fit you, and you think you would like it, then you're welcome to join the group. But there is no consideration ever given to the needs of that individual. And what can we do? Any of this stuff, we got to modify, change, turn it around, fix something to help you, work with you, whatever we got to do. That's what the evangelism philosophy guy thinks. I'll do whatever I've got to do to win you to God. If I've got to meet with you and have Bible study, you don't have to come to my Wednesday night Bible study. But the maintenance philosophy church uh, and the attitude there is, here's what we have to offer. It's designed to meet the needs of the whole group. Nothing individual about it. If you like it, take it. If you don't, leave it. That's the maintenance philosophy church. B, in the maintenance philosophy church, tenure rules. Tenure, T-E-N-U-R-E, I believe. Tenure rules. There are no new people involved in leadership. No new people involved in problem solving. No new people involved in decision making. Tenure rules in the maintenance philosophy church. See in your notes. The maintenance philosophy church is slow to change. Slow to change. Even if what they're doing is not working and they know it. Now, that's a horrible thing to have to say, but it is so true. Even if what they're doing is not working and they know it's not working. Now, I've got a philosophy about programs. I work at World Evangelism Center and we have some good programs that come out of there sometimes that will be a blessing to your church. We have some that have come out of there that are flops. We've got some that are good for a while and after a while they need to be given a decent burial and you need to transfer your attention to something else. I have never ever been married to a program. The only thing that I'm married to is the Word of God. I sat down with Ron Libby who is one of the greatest growing pastors we have in our fellowship and he uh, right after we received our, uh, our award at conference for being the fastest growing church in our Sunday school category brother Libby sat down with me and he said brother Cunningham I want you to tell me how that Newport News church is growing he said is it bus ministry is it small groups is it home bible studies is it Sunday school is it and he listed a bunch of things and I said yes 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 and yes I said, we use all the above. We use anything that works. And anything quits working, we can it. We buried it. Nothing is set in cement in the way of evangelism for our church. We've been in and out of bus ministry at least two times. Bought all the buses, got involved, run the buses. But when they dwindled down to eight or ten on a bus route, and you've got more captains, more drivers, more mechanics, more people involved in keeping them running than what you're bringing on them, that's a good sign you need to shut them down. 
and do something else for a while. Take all those people that are giving their time every week, hours of their week, to this program. Don't let them sit on a pew. Immediately transfer them into a new and exciting program. They're going to love you for it because believe me, nobody's more humiliated about eight coming in on a bus than the dude that's driving it and the guy that's the captain of it. And if you give him another opportunity to do something else that's going to produce souls for the kingdom, he's going to thank you for it. He's not going to be offended that you shut his bus route down. We've shut them all down, waited three or four years, and went out and bought all new buses again. Everybody got excited. Everybody got involved in it. We did the door-to-door deal where you tried to make people members of your church or, or members of your Sunday school. We, we did the home Bible studies. We've taught one day, two day, four days, 12 week, 10 week, you name it. We taught it. I even taught that one that was supposed to be doctrinally wrong. I taught it for a year before I ever knew it was doctrinally wrong and won people to God with it. Didn't even know it. Don't be married to nothing. Don't be married to any program. Use every program that works as long as it's putting people on the pew, use it. And when it quits working, stop using it. Put your attention, put your effort somewhere else. But maintenance philosophy churches are slow to change even if they know it's not working. D, maintenance philosophy churches are usually a closed society. You couldn't break into some of our United Pentecostal churches inner circle with a 20-pound sledgehammer. Hello? You walk into the vestibule of some churches, they're standing there in little circles with their back to the door. Nobody's waiting at the door. Nobody's opening the door. The guy that pulled into the parking lot, he couldn't find a parking place because that first parking place right by the front door says pastor. The second one says pastor's wife. Third one says assistant pastor. And then his wife, then the youth leader, then the Sunday school director, all the way down to the head usher and the tail usher. They got all the best parking places and the visitor parks way out there in the mud somewhere. Hello? We got a closed society going here. I can tell you when I pull into a parking lot, whether I'm in a maintenance philosophy church or an evangelism philosophy church, just by where everybody's parked at. When you walk in, when you drive into the parking lot of a church and there is designated parking for the visitors, it tells you something about the church. It tells you about their attitude toward the person that's going to visit that church. And so the maintenance philosophy church is a closed society. People can't get in. They're not, they don't feel welcome. Uh, we have our own little society that locks other people out. That is not the will of God. He went out of his way. The Lord Jesus Christ went out of his way to touch sinners. He said, I must needs go through Samaria. When all good Jews went around Samaria. What was he going through Samaria for? He's going to meet a woman at a well that's been married five times and the man she's living with now is not her husband. He said, I've got to go through Samaria. And the only thing he did there was talk to that one woman. Hello? Evangelism philosophy. E in your notes, maintenance philosophy churches are habitual in worship and in structure. Habitual in worship and in structure. Same songs, same song leader. Hello? Same schedule. It's bad. It's bad. When you've sang two songs and you're on the second course of the second song and everybody stands up before you tell them to stand because they know what's coming next. And when old Joe's coming to the pulpit, everybody's reaching for their wallet while he's just walking. It's bad. They know what's going on. 
They know what's going to happen next. Everything is habitual. Everything's the same. Nothing is stirring. Nothing has changed. I remember whenever folks, when the overhead projectors became affordable and everybody began using overhead projectors and then somebody got the bright idea of putting uh, courses, our courses on an overhead projector so that people that come in among us would know what we're singing. I heard it from coast to coast preach. Bunch of charismatics in our fellowship now. The charismatic spirit is taking over. They're putting their courses on an overhead and flashing them up on the screen. What in the world is charismatic about helping somebody that doesn't know what we're singing to know the words so they can sing with us? Hello? Here's the problem. We don't want to change our own traditions. And tradition is tradition whether it's in the Catholic Church or in the United Pentecostal Church. Hello? When we take our traditions and make them equal to the Word of God, it is sin in capital letters. S-I-N in capital letters when you and I take tradition and make it and give it the same authority as God's Holy Word. This is the only thing that doesn't change. But everything that's man-made is subject to change. Say amen. F in your notes. Out of date with this present generation. Maintenance Philosophy Church. Do not know how to relate to, talk to this present generation. G in your notes. Their preaching and teaching is not functional. They're not helping people live in their marriage, in their finances, in their raising children, whatever. They're not helping with those real needs. And H, the Maintenance Philosophy Church dwells in the past. Dwells in the past. They've, all, they've got all kind of stories about how they used to all shout their hair down. How they used to have all night prayer meetings. How they one time ten years ago had a, had a revival with 29 got the Holy Ghost. And how they used to baptize folks and now there's trees growing out of the baptistry. Hello? They dwell on the past. They live in the past. There's no vision for the future. It's all the way it used to be. You know what I like to tell folks? You know, sometimes people will come up and say, well, I can remember when we used to pray all night long. I like to look right back at them and say, nobody made you stop praying all night long. You can pray all night tonight, honey, if you want to. Hello? I can remember when we used to shout our hair down. There's the aisle. Get after it. Nobody's stopping you from doing it. Quit dwelling in the past. Let's make it happen now. I've had the pre privilege of preaching for Brother James. Did he come up here? Brother James, run out here real quick and tell him what you said to me when you shook hands with me last night about not being in anybody else's dust. I've, I've preached for this guy twice, and he knew I was going to talk about church growth today, and he knows I get a little radical, and I guess he's trying to set me up. But he ran up to me last night and said, I'll have you know I'm not going to be in anybody else's dust. Say it for me. It's happening. We can get in, get with it, and let it happen for us. And I, or, or we can stand behind and eat somebody's dust. I don't intend to eat dust. I'm going to create the dust. Now, that's your choice. It's that simple, friend. That's your choice. You can either dwell in the past and talk about how it used to be and let everybody else have great revival, or, or you can make your mind up that if there's any dust, you're the ones going to be making the dust. Say praise the, Lord. praise the Lord. I'm going to stop with that. I've got a lot of other things to deal with. If you want to fill in the blanks, I'll give you my notes. But let me stop with this. We have churches in our fellowship that are having great revival, and I thank God for that. There's churches in your section and your district that are having great revival. And we need to all be thankful for what God is doing. But one of the things that a maintenance philosophy church or a plateaued church is guilty of is tearing down the revival that is taking place across town. 
when their brother has a hundred get the Holy Ghost, they start talking about, well, he must be compromising or he has no standard. He don't believe fat meets greasy, I think is the way they say it. And they're going to do everything in their ability to tear that... Let me tell you why they tear that revival down. Because nothing is happening at their place. And if they can discredit what you're doing, really their motive is to make them feel good about their self. They can justify doing nothing themselves as a plateaued or a maintenance church by tearing down the success that someone else is having. Hello? My presbyter when I went to Virginia was Brother Robert Warren. Brother Robert Warren and I did not agree. If he was sitting here, I'd say the same thing. We're still good friends. I got a beautiful letter from him last week. He and I did not agree on several issues. Brother Young, you know Brother Warren. He loves to debate. Am I telling the truth? We love to debate. I've set up with that guy till daylight. More times than you can count on your fingers. Debating this and debating that. And we were usually on opposite sides of the issues. But Brother Robert Warren was one of the greatest people in my life as far as motivating me to build a church. He is a church builder. One of the most innovative thinkers that has ever lived. He has a sharp mind, comes up with great ideas, and he was continually prodding me to growth. He came into Virginia and took a church of about 35 people, and overnight it was running 100. I mean literally, it seemed like overnight he'd run 100. And then he went from 100 to 200, then 200 to 300, and he set the district record at that time. It was about 430 or 40 in Sunday school when the biggest uh, crowd anybody had ever had was barely 300. And he set an all-time district record. And Brother Warren was doing such a tremendous job building that church. I walked up to a group of preachers and I said, and, and they're all standing in a circle. And I said to them, I said, man, isn't it great how God's blessing Brother Warren's church, how that the church is growing and God's giving him revival. And I stood there and I watched. The first guy in the circle says, yeah, I heard that he hadn't got any standard." Second guy says, yeah, I heard about half of them that he's winning's black. The next one said, yeah, I, I, I heard there's a bunch of them that's Spanish. And, then the and they go right around the list. I mean, literally around the circle. And I thought to myself, here's a bunch of dudes that are plateaued. They're on dead center. They're not going forward, not going backwards. They're not doing nothing. They're going to tear down the growth he's got. They figure if they take away what he's bringing in on a bus. Hello? They figure if they can take away what's black and what's Spanish, if they can take away uh, uh, the, 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 those that haven't yet been discipled and are lining up to the standard, if they can take all that away, then maybe he ain't doing any better than they're doing. I'm going to tell you something. Here's philosophy of, philosophy of Jack Cunningham's church. I want them if they come on a bus or a Learjet. I want them if they come off the street or if they're the pediatrician of New Orleans. I want them if they're black, white, Spanish, Asian. If you walk into our church on Sunday night, it looks like the United Nations in our church. I mean, we've got about 15 or 20 different nationalities in the church on Sunday night. I've got everything but an Iranian, and we are actively looking for one of them. I want anybody and everybody that walks in shoe leather. I want the drunks, Brother Hyde. I want the jailbirds. I want men women, I want business people, I want black, I want white, I want everybody that I can win sitting on that pew. Hallelujah. I want us to raise our hands and ask God to help us. There is, hold on just a minute. 
There is a tremendous revival in the United Pentecostal Church. There's an excitement. There is an anticipation like I've never felt in my life. People are having growth. I could stand here and tell you of a dozen churches that have had more than 100 people get the Holy Ghost since January 1st this year. Reports are coming into headquarters that revivals already began. We're not even waiting on Pentecost Sunday. I think Pentecost Sunday is going to be the day we pop the cork on it, but the revival's already begun. You've heard it in this meeting here. 37 got the Holy Ghost uh, in his town just in the last 30 days or in the month of March. All over. Brother Tenney told me about a little church that's had 90 in the last 11 weeks here in Louisiana that's got the Holy Ghost. I want you to know revival is in the air. I want you to raise your hands and pray, God, don't let us miss it. Help us to get the things out of the way that hinder revival. I want to be a part of it. I want to grow. I want to have a revival in my town, in my church, in my ministry, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah.